Yes, listeners, we're, we're, we're really talking to Fuchsia Dunlop, uh, who is like an undisputed expert on the Chinese food. Um, and uh, I think we interviewed you about the, uh, the food of Sichuan, uh, which has become so popular now. Um, but in the sections of your book, which is massive, I mean, there is so thorough. I'm trying to figure out how in the world we can cover all this information. How much research did you do on this? 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I mean, you could say that because it's lots of themes and ideas that I've been developing really over 20 or 30 years. And, uh-huh. um, you know, there are stories from my travels over a very long time. But I guess I started writing the book properly um, at the beginning of the pandemic, so about three, three or four years ago. And, um, and that's when I started trying to draw the, the, the ideas together and doing some specific research for the themes in the book. But yeah, quite a lot of um, ideas went into it. Well, you, you picked an enormous subject, and, and the book is so filled with important information that I'm going to suggest uh, to readers that they view it really as a, um, a resource, um, a reference book, um, and as well as it, it reading, you'll find some amazing revelations in there. Um, I was particularly taken by your, uh, your description of um, El Bulli. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he he loved Chinese food, didn't he? Yeah, well, well Farron is the chef of, of El Bulli. I mean, he's one of the few Western chefs, I think, who's really given Chinese cuisine its, its due credit. And, and he said that he thought that if it hadn't been for the Cultural Revolution, which sort of disrupted China for, for some time, then all the chefs in the world, himself included, would be, as he said, worshipping the Chinese dragon. <laughs> um, and China would have been viewed as the, the world's preeminent cuisine, but for that. Well, I mean, but, you know, I remember all too well um, the days when we couldn't get any authentic Chinese food. I mean, you devote a lot of attention to um, uh, things like that, the, what is the um, chop suey and... Um, the um, the pork balls and there were broccoli, beef and broccoli. I mean, I remember that that's what we had a choice of, and and there was. I also have been lucky enough to find um, important experts in Chinese cuisine, uh, and 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 got behind the scenes, behind the uh, the Chinese language menu which wasn't going to tell me anything uh and uh, actually we, we had a, a wonderful um, dinner with a, a, an internationally prominent surgeon from hong kong where he did all the ordering and and the owners knew him and it was a very different experience from other people walking in and, and picking up a menu and trying to order yeah well i mean i think the thing is that Chinese food, American Chinese food, it has been hugely successful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's popular all over America and all over the world, really, this kind of slightly simplified version of Cantonese food that is based on just one Chinese regional cuisine. 
So it's been very successful, but it's just not a very accurate reflection of Chinese cuisine as a whole because China is so enormous. I mean, it's more of a continent than a country. And there are so many different regions. And also, you know, they have everything from very inexpensive street food and rustic cooking to the most fabulous and complicated and labor-intensive banquet cookery. Um, and, and I think that's something that is, has not really been reflected um, in, the, in, in the way Chinese food is cooked in the West. No, not even close. <laughs> um, uh, when you talk about the vastness, I was sort of stopped in my tracks by looking at the map you have in, right in, in the beginning of your book, how unfamiliar I am after all those years of education with the details of the geography of that whole region. You know, I, I have um, my nephew married um, a Mongolian uh, woman, um, and um, it's, it's a whole different culture, and you'd think I'd know about it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about China is that I think, um, you know, many people outside the country, I mean, they would have heard of Cantonese food now, of Sichuanese yeah, food, and, and, you know, they will know of Beijing and Shanghai and maybe Chengdu, the Sichuanese capital. But as you said, China is vast. You know, there are, there are numerous provinces and um, very great range of geographical terrains and different produce. And every province has its own sort of culinary style and many areas within provinces too. And so we just see the, the tip of the iceberg in Chinese communities in the West. Yeah. The, funny, the funny thing is, and, uh, is uh, Tisha, I just read in The Economist magazine that I think, I think uh, India is now more populous than China. Oh, really? Have they? Yeah, I knew it was quite, getting quite close. Apparently it passed. I mean, I mean yeah. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting for one moment that your book isn't absolutely fabulous, because it certainly is. It's just, just fa- fa- facts are changing just a little bit as we go along. Mm. Times are changing, and of course that, that was... I didn't know when to introduce that without laying the groundwork of, um, I mean, you do talk about uh, the food um, now in the future, but um, it, I'm not sure that, that that anybody knows what's exactly, we know what's in the past, but I'm not sure we know what's in the future for Chinese cuisine. What do you think? Well, I, nobody ever knows the future about anything, do they? But I mean, I certainly think that, um, that the profile of Chinese cuisine is changing in the West. I mean, for example, in the last couple of decades, there have been so many new regional restaurants. So oh, yes. in London, where I live, and also in, in cities in America, Sichuanese food has become hugely popular. Um, oh, and too. then food from Hunan, the Northwest or Dongbei region, Shanghai, Jiangnan region. And so I think already um, people in the West can see that there's much more to Chinese food than that that original sort of American Chinese based on Cantonese style. Um, right. And I think, yeah, and I just, and, um, and I think there are more different kinds of restaurants and more 
a lot of the Chinese food that you find in places with Chinese communities is, you know, it's no longer tailored to Western tastes like exactly. the kind of old school takeout food. It's Chinese food on Chinese terms that Chinese people want to eat. And that means that the rest of us get a chance to try more authentic dishes. Now, one of the things that, uh, well, I want to ask you, first of all, with all this vast array of just about I mean, history, geography, the whole thing, how did you decide to organize this book? Well, so the book is organized um, in, in a number of chapters, and each chapter is centered on a certain dish. <laughs> and I use the dish to tell a story about one aspect of Chinese cooking that's really distinctive. So, for example, there's one chapter that's about the art of stir-frying. Um, there's one chapter that's about pork, which is a, one of the most, you know, probably the most popular meat across China. And then there are other chapters that try to explore more philosophical aspects of food. Um, and so I hope that in, in reading it, um, people will, I mean, I hope it will make people very hungry and make their mouths water anyway. <laughs> But I think that it will also show lots of different aspects of this very complex and sophisticated cuisine. Well, it is. And um, and, and it's a lot of travelers. My mother was an early traveler to to China. Before uh, Americans were even uh, allowed um, the, the, the visas to go in, uh, she went with a, a group of academics, um, and, but she was really hesitant about ordering the food there. She packed crackers and things. <laughs> she didn't eat a whole, yeah. she didn't eat a whole lot of snake. I remember that. No, she did not. She was a little upset about the snake. <laughs> the snake is quite good. I mean, it, the preparation takes forever, however. Um, so you, you you really point out how it may seem very exotic to us and mysterious to us, the, the whole of, of Chinese cuisine, but how the Chinese were the first to introduce things that the West have take, has taken for granted, and the Chinese have been doing it for years. Yeah, like one particular example is that um, now there's this fashion for vegan eating or eating less meat. And right. all these Western manufacturers are trying to concoct, you know, sausages and burgers and other meat foods that are actually vegetarian but resemble meat and fish. And uh -huh. um, the Chinese have this amazing tradition of Buddhist vegetarian cooking that does exactly that that makes whole banquets of regular dishes that look like meat and fish but are only made from plant foods. And this goes back to at least the 10th century. Um, and it's extraordinary that amid all the excitement about vegan food in the West, that very, so few people are really looking to China as a source of inspiration. And another, another thing that I mentioned in the book is that um, I think most of us associate the origin of the restaurant with Paris in the 18th century. Right. But the Chinese in Hangzhou, for example, not far from Shanghai, there was a, a very lively and diverse restaurant scene in the 13th century. <laughs> so yes. hundreds That's, of years. It goes back Paris. a ways. 
the one thing that I, I kept it kept popping into my head that was I'm reading this book is um, how accessible all these wonderful dishes and ingredients were. I mean, a large chunk of them was reserved only for the um, the, the rich and the uh, titled and so forth. Well, I think that in the past, I mean, until relatively recently, a lot of Chinese people ate mainly vegetables and grain foods, and people couldn't afford to eat much meat. So, um, you know, even meat and fish were more special treats or, or luxuries for people who were better off. Um, but but the, the great thing about China is that it's such a, you know, it's a really a culture that is interested in food, that's serious about food and thoughtful about food. So you get fantastically interesting and delicious dishes at all levels. So yes, you have banquet cuisine made with, you know, very expensive um, in- ingredients, but also you have country cooking. So for example, you know, there's a dish in, in my book, which is really just showcasing the flavor of wild bamboo shoots, completely delicious, right. um, choice some, um, sorry, gailan, Chinese broccoli with ginger. That's just a green vegetable, but but made into something really delicious by artful cooking. And um, so I, I think there are, of course, there are lots of very elitist and inaccessible dishes, which are hugely um, time-consuming to prepare, use expensive ingredients. But one of the great impressions, I mean, when I was a student in China in the 1990s, just very ordinary restaurants had selling really inexpensive food, had fresh, delicious, you know, um, Really excellent, excellent dishes. Yeah, no, um, you know, I think we've come this far in the interview with that and making sure that the listeners know that the book itself is called Invitation to a Banquet, the story of Chinese food. Talk about a big subject to tackle if you should sum up. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's like the history of the world, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I can just give people a little taste of it. I hope. Let's let's get Fuchsia to to take a side on on one fascinating subject, which is who who invented pasta and who invented whatever. Oh yeah. Was it really the Chinese who invented spaghetti? Well. Yeah, so there's a whole chapter in the book about um, about pasta foods, about noodly things, and um, they have a very interesting history in China going back, um, you know, to the the early part of the first millennium. Um, so there isn't any obvious connection between Italian pasta and Chinese, and they may have, you know, have sort of developed separately. But certainly in China, there's a very long history of doing exciting things with dough. Um, Originally, the Chinese ate mainly steamed whole grains, things like rice and millet. And then sometime around 2,000 years ago, a bit before, um, they got um, these stone mills, rotary mills from Central Asia, and that gave them the technology to make very fine flour. And then they started experimenting with noodles. And so there are descriptions in texts going back about sort of 1,700 years 
um, descriptions of of noodle type foods and dumpling type foods and um, and then of course it, it the Chinese are so creative when it comes to cooking and there's one region in particular Shanxi province in the north which I wrote about in the book um, which is famous for its its pastas or its flour food yeah. as they say in Chinese and in Shanxi they just they make so many different shapes so they have stretched noodles which are long strings um, and ribbons and they also make noodles by snipping bits off a ball of dough with a pair of scissors by using their, their thumbs to make little shells like orecchiette which are actually called or cat's ears in Chinese and all these different shapes which are made by rubbing, grating, stretching, pulling pasta um, and what's really interesting is that only a few of these types of noodles are known in the West so in the last few years we've had lanjo hand pulled noodles um, the biang biang hand-pulled sort of ribbon-like noodles of um, Xi'an and a few other styles but we just don't see much of this hugely interesting pasta culture in northern China. Yeah, we, uh, When we lived in, in Kansas City um, it, it was one of those odd coincidences um, the director of the Museum of Art there uh, happened to be related, I think his father uh, was a missionary to China and of course um, managed to talk the Chinese into um, uh, turning over all these antiquities to him because they were uh, viewed as the false idols <laughs> and uh-huh. so he had the makings of a great museum. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, and But the, the reason I brought it up was um, it, one of the best restaurants I ever went to was in a, a strip mall in the suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> and, yeah. and that was because it, because I mean, there were pockets of of um, Chinese influence throughout this country for various reasons. So you, yeah. you find out, yeah, you find things where you never expect to find them. And it's certainly not always like in, in like New York City or so. But, but they did they did like their catfish in Kansas City. Well, we would have to mention catfish. I think we <laughs> But anyhow, um, yeah, no, I mean, they did the, the, the noodles stretching uh, demonstrations in this funny little strip mall restaurant, <laughs> Chinese restaurant. It was, it was absolutely, uh, I'm, I'm, think back on it and think I must have dreamed it up. <laughs> yes, it's kind so of mesmerizing when you, when you see it for the first time, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's, um, and it's so difficult to do. I mean, I've tried many times, but these people who take um, a ball of dough and they make it into strands of really thin, even noodles that don't break, it's incredibly difficult. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just when you think it's going to all fall apart, <laughs> they go on for another round of it. It's amazing. You know, something that I appreciated a lot since your subject is so vast was the section of your book where you take the different, um, you you apply culinary development to the historical chronology. 
I mean, and, and, and that that's a, a stroke of genius. I mean, you, so you say the mythical past, and then you talk about those issues. Then you move on to the Neolithic age, and then you say rice and millet first cultivated in China. I mean, it, you go through a whole history like that, and it's, it's, it's a major revelation for most people. No, kid, I, I'm very happy to hear that. Yes, I mean, I think one, one of the things I really want to do is give people a sense of the, the sort of long history of Chinese cuisine. And it's really fascinating how some aspects go back so, so, you know, such a long time. For example, steaming, which is a really characteristic cooking method in modern Chinese yeah. cookery. You know, you see all those bamboo steamers in dim sum restaurants. Um, but steaming goes back to the Neolithic age in China. At archaeological sites from the Neolithic age, they found pottery steamers in various parts of China. So um, there are these extraordinary continuities going back, um, you know, hundreds and often thousands of years. Um, and I hope to bring that out by the chronology, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, I feel in awe of Chinese culture in general. I mean, when I did courses in, in Chinese art, the history of art in China, I mean, I was amazed at what we think of as being old <laughs> in the West. Yeah. <laughs> By comparison, it's ridiculous, I mean, really. Yeah. So, um, now, how does it feel for you to do uh, probably the first Westerner to know this much about Chinese cooking and, and culinary traditions? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, it's just it's something that I just find completely fascinating, and um, and I will never ever feel that I've learned enough or exhausted the subject. So I guess that's why I'm still doing it after 30 years because it's just it's going to go on being exciting for the rest of my life. Yeah, I have to mention, by the way, that I've read your works and, and you seem so um, authoritative about everything that I, I honed in on your author's photograph in the back flap of the book here. You're actually um, not old, <laughs> and you're rather impish looking. <laughs> you don't look old in the scholarly at all. <laughs> uh, well, I'll take, I hope I can take that as a compliment. <laughs> we, 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 we could, couldn't possibly think of is anything else. Because <laughs> we, we can't see, see what you look like. <laughs> Except for the picture on the back of the book. Oh, the picture, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, it, we're at a, a major crossroads in the whole global scene here. I mean, we're very aware of it, and and we we Skype with our, our British relatives every Sunday, and, uh, and they're very aware of all that's happening as well. And as I said, I have a, a, a niece by marriage who's Mongolian, um, who uh, father actually uh, did supplying a food stuff um, it, it, under the communist regime, and mm -hmm. and and, and well, doing this 
very complicated, you know. I mean, Mongolia's history is very complicated as it mm. is. Um, but everybody's always talking about the changes uh, in the world. I and mean, then we see the changes in day-to-day news vis-a-vis uh, the Western world and China, and in China itself, which is why I asked the question, I mean, what do you see happening down the road? I mean, I look at a lot of cuisines around the world and see them changing sometimes for the better, sometimes not. But it, it's such a complex issue in China. What do you think, I mean, will, will they, you said that the old ways were being revived, and that happens in a lot of countries. But what about um, exposure to the West and diluting is there a dilution of traditions going on? Well, I wouldn't really see it as a dilution because, I mean, one of the things that I, I did try to touch on a bit in the book is that Chinese cuisine anyway is really multicultural. So there's mm-hmm. one chapter in the book about, about the sort of um, the Muslim halal cooking of northern China and how it fits into northern Chinese cuisine. And northern Chinese cuisine is a real amalgam of influences from Central Asia, from Mongolia, from the Northeast. And you have all these, um, there were, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago was one of the heydays of the Silk Road, all those trading routes across Central Asia. And at that time, all kinds of ingredients came in from the West, you know, the Western lands, as they were called in China, things like black pepper and cucumbers, um, and um, they were all adopted and incorporated into Chinese food. And the technology for grinding flour, which enabled them to make noodles and breads, also came from the West. And then in North China, too, they eat a lot of sheep meat, of lamb and mutton. And that mm-hmm. connects with the cultures to the North, for example, the Mongolians. And in northern Chinese cooking, there are all these striking parallels with the food traditions of um, Asia as far as the Middle East and of India. So things like in Beijing, there's a, a famous snack called the pangar, the sugar ear, which is a sort of deep fried fritter that's steeped in syrup. Very like similar, um, similar foods in the Middle East and in India. And um, they have versions of halva, and um, so I think Chinese cuisine is really multicultural. And the best um, example of that, perhaps, is Sichuanese. And Sichuan is right in the heart of China. And yet, one of the symbols of the cuisine of the province is the chili, which came from the Americas, first right. seen in China in the 16th century, and only became established in Sichuan a bit later. So this, the, the chili then was mixed with the ancient native Sichuan pepper to make the famous mala, numbing and hot combination, which is oh, very right. typical of That's Sichuan food. Oh, right. That taste is, is yeah, numbing. I mean, things, you know, yeah, but the chili was a foreign ingredient, and yes, it's totally Sichuan now. So I think that's why I don't really think of it as dilution. So yes, China is exposed to international influences, but to an extent, it always has been. Um, I think the real risk now is just in China, to, I mean, to culinary culture, is very similar to other places, which is that um, 
the, the loss of tradition that comes from industrialization, from people leaving the countryside for the cities. Um, it's very noticeable when I was a student in Sichuan in the 1990s that many people were excellent home cooks, men as well as women. And um, many of the adults who I knew when I was a student there, they could not only cook, but they could cure their own winter sausages and pickle vegetables and so on. And those every, everyday skills are really dwindling and lots of young people don't really learn how to cook in that thorough way like their parents and grandparents. Um, so I think it's a society in a state of really rapid change and that um, just like everywhere else, that people are eating more takeout, more fast food... <laughs> And I just, I, one of the things that I hope out in the book is that um, the Chinese have this really ancient culture of eating. So in China, food is medicine, and it's been seen that way for about 2,000 years. And yeah. so the, the, they really, the elder generation really know how to eat for good health, to have a balanced diet, right. to maintain good health. And and I think that's something that is not only a valuable resource for Chinese people, but we could all learn something from it. So I just, um, you know, very much hope that people will value their traditions and nourish them and hand them down because there's so much. Well, I mean, the world is, is, seems to be getting ready for it. I, mean, I, I responded um, uh, immediately to, to, to your um, you're talking about how uh, nobody in, in the West, um, especially like in the States, uh, thought that they should be charged that much money for, for Chinese food because it's been um, up, played up as, as a cheap, fast um, food culture. And, and a friend of ours um, opened a, a, a restaurant. He, he has a, a star, a one-star restaurant in uh, Las Vegas, and uh, he tried to open one in, in Pittsburgh. And people, but he had wonderful different varieties of rice, but people were so used to getting the regular old white rice with their meals for free that nobody would, would spend the money on the, on the uh, the different upgrades of rice. It's, it's, yeah, I think that's yeah, really people. true. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I mean, I think that it's very normal in Western cities for people who can afford it to spend a lot of money on Japanese sushi, other Japanese food. Yeah, that's expensive stuff. Spanish, yeah, or on a Spanish tasting menu. But Chinese yeah. food has got kind of stuck in the very popular but kind of inexpensive everyday bracket. And um, it's just that, um, you know, there's no reason why, you know, I mean, China has such delicate and sophisticated high-level cooking. And that's something that you do have to pay for and that is worth it if you can afford it. And it's part of Chinese culinary culture, which, again, isn't really recognized abroad. But you, yeah. and, you and I, Fiona, did, did note... No. We were very disappointed in London's Chinatown, and you said you were too. Oh, well, I mean, it's just very small compared yeah, to... Exactly. I mean, our, small. our Chinatown is just a couple of streets. 
So and I'm in New York at the moment, and it's <laughs> huge with all these wonderful shops selling fresh produce and all these restaurants and so on. So it's on a different scale. I mean, you just have such huge Chinese communities in some places, and that's oh, reflected sure. in Chinatowns. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to walk through Chinatown in San Francisco around about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Very stuck. <laughs> when, when, when Mama is going out to buy duck and sauce. <laughs> well, um, again, um, Fuchsia Dunlop, uh, you, I, I call it a major uh, opus, this book, The Invitation to a Banquet. And I think that uh, anybody reading this will have a, a whole new approach to eating Chinese food. And it's not something you get when, when you can't think of what else to cook for dinner <laughs> and take away. It's, it's, it's a world-class cuisine. And um, I, I just hope that the, the traditions can be integrated with people's new interests. And so that goes on. But you have to feel that you've done a great service to a subject that you've been interested in and devoted your life to for, since you were a student. Uh, three decades, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and just by the way, Thank and I can't, I, can't, I can't remember the fine detail on this, but we, several years ago we interviewed a couple of young ladies who had a Chinese restaurant in Manchester. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, Sweet Mandarin. Is that right? Oh, they, well, you know what it is. You know its name. I couldn't remember its name. I forgot. Yeah, we did interview them. Well, they, I forgot they, about they, that. Well, they told us, if you remember, that they were invited to 10 Downing Street in London to cook for the premier <laughs> of China when, when he came for a, a visit to London. Yes. Yeah, which is, which is itself amazing because they're women, and and I think men have always led the uh, the the core of, of, of chefs in China, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in general the catering trade is dominated by men, so women tend to work in pastry making, so dumplings and dim sum or cold dishes. Um, you know, I have met some remarkable women chefs. But, so what um, about but the woman in, in San Francisco? I mean, the, the, we interviewed her about her book, The Seventh Daughter. Chang, oh, was it? Chang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's well, dead now, right? She she died about two years ago, yes. Yeah, right. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Amazing, amazing woman, yeah. Yeah, and the, the guts it took for her to pull up her roots and come on her own to the stage. I thought it was amazing. Mm. Well, I mean, you and I could chat and Peter and could chat with us um, um, forever and ever, but I guess you're on a tight schedule for your book tour. Mm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful that you wrote this book because it's, it's, it's something that everybody should probably read and use as a resource. Um, Thank you very much. I'm delighted you're wonderful. That you're Thank you. <laughs> and you do look impish in that photo. <laughs> okay. Thank you for talking to us. 
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Grace Lynn, um, you've won so many awards, um, Newbury, Caldecott, um, you know, these are absolute masterful prizes for uh, children's books and illustrations, and, and you, you wrote what we're going to talk about today, The Chinese Menu, The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods, and you did all the illustrations the whole thing is just, the whole book is just totally charming. And uh, oh, what, a, what a great publication. Um, you answered a number of questions um, in, in your different sections. Um, how did you select the dishes you were going to talk about, like the most um, popular dishes there? How did you do that? Um, you know, it's a mixture of many different things. So, you know, Chinese menu is uh, divided just like a menu, where it's like appetizers, chef specials, desserts, side orders. <laughs> um, so, so basically, I took those sections of a of a menu, and um, I I looked at many menus of a Chinese restaurant and saw what is what is common in most Chinese restaurants in the United States. And um, I kind of cross-referenced that with, this, with the dishes that I knew stories of already. And, um, and I also uh, searched out some new stories. And I also just picked stories that I thought um, people would really find interesting. Yeah, so it was yeah. a mixture of all of those things. Now, what's the real story on Marco Polo? <laughs> did he, did, he, did he go there first and bring stuff back, or did, did, well, did he you know, collect pizza and, and, and reinvent it in Italy? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's such an intriguing character. Yes, he is. Well, there's two stories that mention Marco Polo in my book. Um, the first one is the myth of pizza and scallion pancakes. And this is yeah. pretty much a myth that has been shown to be not true. <laughs> but it's a, it's a myth that, that lives on and that people enjoy. Uh, but it's pretty much not true with the idea that Marco Polo came to China and he enjoyed scallion pancakes very, very much. And when he was in Italy, he really wanted to have scallion pancakes again, but he, since he had only eaten them and never baked, made them, he didn't know uh, how to make them, and he got all these chefs to try to make scallion pancakes. Didn't work out, but they did make the pizza. Like, that's the big myth. Um, so um, okay, good, that is, good, unfortunately, good. that unfortunately is not true. However, however, there is a good possibility that gelato or ice cream was inspired by Marco Polo's journey to China because the Chinese knew how to freeze ice hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, anyone in Europe. And so they had, um, when Marco Polo came to China, it was under Mongol rule and um, uh, the Han Chinese, uh, the people, the Chinese people be, that are usually in charge, it was, when it wasn't in, under Mongol rule, they don't really 
drink or eat a lot of milk, but Mongolians did. And um, because the Mongolians liked milk, uh, they would be very upset when their milk was, um, uh, uh, what is it, not rotten, <laughs> when it goes bad. Spoiled, that's the word, thank you. Spoiled, <laughs> when, yeah. it, when it was spoiled. And uh, so uh, to keep their keep Kublai Khan and their Mongol rulers happy, the, Chinese, the Han Chinese, instead of freezing water, froze milk. And so when Marco Polo came to China uh, during the Mongol rule, he most likely uh, was treated to ice milk, the thing invented by, for the Mongol rulers. And very likely... Uh, Marco Polo took this idea of frozen milk back to Italy, and it slowly, possibly, probably turned into ice cream and gelato. <laughs> okay. Man. Well, you know, the, I wanted to say that you're, this book is even more remarkable by something you just alluded to about the stories, the myth. The, the, there's so much stuff is so ancient, and there's so much myth built around all these stories there had it been a really difficult research project for you to find out or try to track down the real stories behind all these different uh, dishes. Yeah, well, um, I had the idea for this book all the way back in 2004. I had um, created a children's picture book uh, for like kindergartners, uh, first graders on fortune cookies. And I had done a little bit of research on fortune cookies, and I had found out that the fortune cookie is a completely um, Asian-American invention. So uh, people in China consider the fortune cookie an American cookie. And so yeah, right. uh, after, I found, after I found this out, I would tell people that, and they would always say, they would always say, oh, so fortune cookies aren't even really Chinese? And they would be... Um, They'd, be, they'd always be kind of disgusted at that. And I always felt really bad for the fortune cookie. <laughs> and honestly, and I kind of identified a bit with the fortune cookie because um, I was born here in the United States. Um, but I've had a very difficult um, relationship with my identity early on. Uh, very, as a child, I really didn't want to be Asian. And, um, and so I kind of rejected my heritage very early on, and only as I grew into adulthood did I try to embrace it. And so I kind of really empathized with the fortune cookie because I felt like a lot of people could say that about me, like, she's not really Chinese. And so um, I really wanted to do this book because I felt Hello, like... Have you, have you thought of going on the stage? <laughs> And and telling the story. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's such a delightful way of speaking it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Though I have to, admit, I I am very well practiced. <laughs> um, so wait. Uh, yeah. So, but you, oh, you, you grew into your your identity. Yeah, and so um, anyway, so that made me want to do this book. Um, and so since 2004, um, I've been collecting stories uh, for this book, honestly. Um, uh, a lot of them have just been stories from my parents, from relatives, uh, like badly, badly written English translations, <laughs> things like that. Um, but for this book, I, uh, when we finally decide to go forth with publication, I um, hired 
a uh, research assistant. She was a she was a student in Chinese studies at Smith College, and she really helped me out on all the research you, you were asking about. So uh, I have to admit that I relied on her quite a bit. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, I mean, it, you you really don't know. I mean, there's so many variations of all these, and so much of it is myth. It had been a really difficult task to put it together, but you have just the right light tone. And I wonder if this is, a, and, and lucidity about it, I wonder if this is because of your experience writing children's books. Um, I, I would say probably yes, um, because children are the most uh, honest of critics. Exactly. <laughs> if they don't like it, they will tell you. If they are bored, they will leave. Uh, they Patients in general is not a child's strongest strength. So I think that um, writing for them is very good discipline for an author. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very jealous. I mean, a friend of mine and I, when we had four-year-old kids, uh, uh, attempted to write this book. And um, it was um, the animal banquet. I mean, the characters were wonderful. And I did some of the illustrations. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the caterer who did all the cleanup was was a buzzard, you know. And I love drawing a buzzard. Yeah, it was great. And, and but we we got the nicest uh, rejection letters. But we <laughs> the hardest part was sending out all these uh, copies to all these potential publishers, and only yeah. to get back very nice things. But but the thing that was we had talking animals in it, and they were out of style. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, these things kind of go in and out. But nowadays, it's so much luckier with the internet. You don't have to send things out like that anymore. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, we do packages. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I loved your your introductory chapter here on chopsticks. Um, Peter's heard the story a million times, but uh, I was forced to learn to use chopsticks effectively when I was a starving graduate student. <laughs> because uh, one of my professors was married to this Chinese woman who was a fantastic cook, but she would only invite the starving graduate students if if they could effectively use chopsticks to eat. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> so we all got what to a way it. To you know? <laughs> so you learned, I might you not learned, have passed that. Yeah, you, know, you said you never did it right, but I guess you do now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, some of these, uh, these, like, who doesn't want to know the origins of uh, Peking duck? I mean, <laughs> I mean, but that's a complicated one. There's so much tradition involved there, and so much, yes. um, yeah, so much symbolism. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a difficult one to tackle. In fact, you gave it a lot of space in your book. <laughs> yes. Well, Peking Duck is... It's really amazing to, to, to see when it's, when it's 5 p.m. in Chinatown in San Francisco, all the ladies of the household are there get, getting their Peking Ducks yeah. with, a, with, a, with, a, with a pour of sauce to go with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and you can see all the ducks hanging in the window and things like that. Exactly. So those are yeah, yeah. taking ducks, but, but they are those smoked ducks. <laughs> you know, I'm talking to you about this, uh, the, your chapter on the Peking duck, 
and, and you said the things you have to do in China is walk the Great Wall, visit the Forbidden City, and eat Peking duck. I'm looking at right in front of me on the wall um, above my desk is a photograph of my mother touching the Great Wall in China. Mm, how beautiful. Yeah, yeah I mean, so it's, it just I just looked up and there it was. I'm so, I'm, it, it, that's sort of mythic and poetic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the, so she accomplished funny, one of the three. But the funny, funny part about it, sweetheart, you remember you told you told me this, or whether Nora told me this. She, 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 when she was in China, she lived on a diet of some kind of crackers. Oh yes, yeah, she, 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 she never <laughs> ate the food. She yeah. Was, she was, she was oh, that's too bad. Chicken or like that. You know, <laughs> another curious thing for me, I never understood everybody's fascination with beef and broccoli, except it tastes very good. But you you agree with me. They, don't, they didn't grow broccoli in no. China. Well, I mean, they do have a broccoli. It's just not the same broccoli. Right. Uh, the broccoli that we have is Italian. And so what we consider beef and broccoli, you know, the broc- they, they have beef and broccoli in China. That's a very traditional dish. But broccoli... Is very different there. It's a much yes. different, it's a completely different vegetable. <laughs> so, um, you know, something else that everybody wants to uh, to know about, um, and you run through that, is what exactly is chop suey? I mean, is it American? Is it uh, inspired by Chinese food? What, what is chop suey? And we used to um, get well, that, and also those canned, what were those... Um, like little sticks of of, um, potatoes, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, there really is a recipe, tapsui, tapsua, which is probably what tapsui was inspired by. Um, You know, as I said um, in the book, and I've said many times, you know, the Chinese food that we have here, it has roots in China, but, you know, it's not anything like what you would actually eat in China because it's all been adapted to for American palates as well as American ingredients. So we were just talking about broccoli. Like they could not get that kind of Chinese broccoli here in the United States. So they, they decided to substitute it with what the broccoli they could get here. Uh, so, uh, so that's why this book is really about American Chinese food, not really Chinese Chinese right. food. Um, and so chop suey is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, there's the story of uh, that it was immigrant, the story, the myth, which people, uh, it, there's a lot of uh, discussion of whether or not it's true or not. <laughs> but the, the myth is that um, during the gold rush, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants came to the United States and uh, they, when they got here, hoping to find gold, like so many, so many immigrants and so many people oh, yeah. looking for gold mountain, uh, they did not find gold mountain. There was nothing. There was no gold, and most of the immigrants did not even have enough money to go back to China. And so they were all trying to eke out a living here in in the United States. And one way they eked out a living was to open up Chinese restaurants. Um, and the story goes that uh, one restaurant tour, you know, restaurants being like these uh, tents <laughs> because it was in the gold fields, these restaurant tents. Um, but uh, what the story goes that a 
a group of drunk miners came in late at night after the restaurant was closed um, and demanded to be served. And the chef was uh, very, uh, there was a lot of violence against um, Chinese immigrants um, at the time. And so the Chinese chef knew better than to say no. Yet, however, he did not really, he did not have any food left uh, and any ingredients. And so he just basically took all his scraps and he took all his scraps and he stir fried it and he served it to them and, uh, and they loved it. <laughs> and so they asked what it was and um, he said it was chop suey, which in, um, in the Chinese, the Cantonese, Taiwanese dialect is, is saying odd scraps. <laughs> of, course, <laughs> of course, the miners did not know that that meant odd scraps. And so it was kind of that chef's little joke on them. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. Um, were any of these stories like surprising to you? I mean, you didn't expect or... Did you learn a lot from this research? I did, actually, um, because, as I said, I had been collecting a lot of stories over the years. Um, and some of them uh, I, uh, I found out were kind of my father's imagination. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> some were just... Uh, and some were just so fascinating that I'd never heard of um, that were better than the ones that I had collected. Um, the ones that I loved... Oh, actually, that I found so much about worry about tea. Um, you know, oh, I was going to ask stories. you about that. Yeah. Talk to us about so many, tea. Yeah, there's so many stories about tea. Um, and so, uh, like, the my daughter's favorite story in the whole book is um, about white hair silver needle tea, which is one of the rarest teas in China. It's a, quite a delicacy. Um, and it's all about... It's all about this tea that was supposed to cure sickness, uh, yet this evil Chinese dragon, which is actually quite rare in Chinese culture. Most of the time, dragon yeah, is right. dead. But uh, there was this evil Chinese dragon that would, was, uh, would not let anybody get this, tea, this special tea. Um, and uh, everybody who went up the mountain, uh, everyone who went up the mountain would hear a sound and uh, would turn around and turn into stone until finally one girl... Uh, filled her ears with rice cakes uh, so she couldn't hear anything and she climbed up the mountain and she did not turn around because she couldn't hear anything <laughs> and she was able to get to this special tea um, and defeat the, the evil dragon. So uh, there's well, lots your of illustration for that is fabulous. That. Your illustration oh, for that is fabulous. I mean, you talk about creating an evil dragon. That one is really... <laughs> he is... Very, very malignant. He's just yeah. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> so all of your tea <laughs> stories are interesting because, I mean, it's such an ancient beverage, and and your your explanations of why it became so um, associated with with eating Chinese food are interesting too. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, just the the I I was taken surprised by you said that. Originally and more authentically, a Chinese meal would have instead of the ongoing uh, cups of tea would have the soup. Mhm. Yes. Yeah. Tea was um, 
it, tea was they didn't have beverages with their meals. Soup was kind of their beverage. Uh, tea was actually started as like a medicinal tonic, right? <laughs> and then yeah, slowly right. it turned into slowly it turned into like they they would have it as like a almost like a separate pastime, you know, was to drink tea. Um, you know, the the Chinese um, did not trust their water supply, so that's why they never really right. drank cold water. It was always boiled water, um, and then, which led to tea or alcohol. <laughs> so uh-huh. it was wine or tea were the, big, were the big beverages that they drank. And um, during meals, it was soup. Yeah. But your, your, your story about jasmine tea is also quite lovely. It's so poetic. Yeah. The, so the story of jasmine tea is about this tea tea vendor, tea peddler, who is always searching for for a, a unusual or delicious and new tea. And um, he, was, he was very obsessed with tea, but he was still kind-hearted. And um, he, uh, on one of his travels, um, he saw a girl who had been stranded. Uh, her father had died, and, and he, she had no way of getting back. So he, he gave her some money and then moved on. And uh, when he came back to the inn, uh, where he had first seen her, he found many years later he found that the poor girl had died, but she had left him a package, and what, to, to thank him. And when he brought that package home, he found out that it was an, a beautiful new tea, jasmine tea, uh, that was uh, the first of its kind. So, yep. So you you have um, I mean dumplings I, I've learned over the years are common in every single cuisine in the world. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I guess Chinese dumplings are very special, uh, as are the, mm-hmm. uh, the difference now you explain between egg rolls and spring rolls. And, and they're, <laughs> they're, one's really authentic and the other one not so, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, authentic is a, is a funny word to use. I mean, it's authentically Asian-American, right? Uh, but but mm-hmm. one is probably older than the other. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. The spring roll, the egg roll is definitely an offshoot of uh, – the egg roll is definitely an offshoot of the spring roll. Um, and dumplings, you know, there's so many different kinds of dumplings. Uh, yeah. You know, the dumplings that we – uh, usually think of at the uh, at the Chinese restaurant. Um, those are the ones uh, you, you may call them jouts, or um, maybe we might call them pot stickers, because um, uh, those, uh, if you look closely at them, you'll see the shape of them. They look a lot like a person's ear, and that was done on purpose yeah. because the person who invented those dumplings was actually an ancient Chinese doctor who invented them as a medicine to cure people's frostbitten ears. He saw people in his village were suffering from frostbitten ears. So he went home and he made the dumpling. He filled it with all these like warming herbs and meats. And he thought if people ate all these warming herbs and meat, it would uh, heat them up on the inside and cure their frostbitten ears. And so he made these dumplings in, in the shape of an ear to remind them what this medicine was for. Now, uh, you know, I don't know if the dumplings really cured anybody's frostbitten ears, but people really love the dumplings, so they kept eating them. And that's <laughs> exactly. why we have the dumpling today. <laughs> yeah. Now, the other thing that's always fascinated me, primarily because I can't imagine why anybody would want to eat bird's nest soup. In fact, I've never <laughs> had it. I would never order it. <laughs> 
foot. But you present it in a, in, in a way that makes it makes it palatable. You know? <laughs> well, Tell us about that. If you go, yeah, if you go to Chinatown and you order bird's nest soup, it's probably not really bird's nest. Now they have like, you know, right. they made it out of uh, like some kind of, Dried pasta. <laughs> yeah, but it used to. They used to have it. I mean, it used to be um, real bird nests, right? Yes, the original ones, and um, probably if you go to China, and you know, you can tell if it's a real thing by looking at the price. If the price yeah, is right. astronomical, <laughs> if the price is astronomical, then you know it's a re- probably a real, the real bird's nest. Um, if it's affordable, it's probably a fake, like a fake pasta <laughs> thing that they've right. made. But but the original um, original bird's nest soup use, uses real bird's nest. Um, that, it was created uh, when um, it was created when these uh, this, a ship a ship was stranded a Chinese ship was stranded on rocky on this rocky island and they were starving for food but they saw these um, these swallows flying up into these high rocks and they're like there must be food there and they climbed up these very very high rocks and the only thing they could see were the swallows' nests so. Uh, desperate, they took the nests and they brought it back to the crew. They boiled it and they ate it, and they actually found it quite delicious and also quite invigorating. And with that kind of yeah. with that in them, they were able to survive and continue on their journey. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, it kind I of got this myth of being this magic food that gives you strength. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, everybody's going to want to know about the general cell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, I, I, I always found him very objectionable. I mean, the name. <laughs> it sounded so anglicized. But you, you write that there's actually a connection. Yeah, so there really is. Many people pronounce it so many different ways. Like some people call it General Cho, some people call it General Tao, some people call it General Cho, which just goes to show how adaptable uh this American Chinese food is, right? Um, so, but there really was a General Cho um, who was a great general in China, um, a very, a very uh, uh, I guess you would say very violent, but a very successful general in China. Um, and, uh, but he never ate this dish. <laughs> he had nothing to do with this dish at all. Um, he probably, <laughs> it's not even really known if he likes chicken because it's General Tso's chicken. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was created by a chef in um, Taiwan. And he just wanted to pick a name. He just wanted to give his new, uh, his new chicken dish a name that sounded um, that sounded that had gravitas to him right <laughs> that sounded yeah. full of respect and uh, one of his local heroes in Hunan was General Tso um, and so he decided he would name his chicken General Tso's chicken <laughs> right after his his um, his hometown hero and so that's how General it became General Tso's chicken now, well was he, was, um, he the, was he the general who wrote a book about making war <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> some, some or other was, some, was somebody in some, somebody in China who wrote a definitive book. Yeah, the, how, you, the, how you waged war, but I don't remember. The yeah, name. the art of, the art of war. Um, but it was not General okay. Tso. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, 
you, you have a whole explanation here. I, I got a little nostalgic, by the way, when we hit this dessert section. I'm not a dessert person anyhow. <laughs> but I haven't had um, you know, an orange segment served up with my bill in a Chinese restaurant <laughs> for years. What happened to that tradition? We always had uh, a cut-up yeah. orange. Really, I, we still get that here. Um, I suppose it depends on where your restaurant is, uh, but maybe they've stopped doing it in certain places. Maybe, they've, maybe the prices of oranges have gone up. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're high now right now, actually. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, the, uh, I'm not sure I fully understand these, the, the uh, fortune cookie thing. I mean, how did it get to be such a big thing? Yeah, the fortune cookie is a fascinating story, uh, and it's got many, many like twists and turns about it, uh, because it, like I said earlier, it is probably uh, the first, one of the first truly Asian American foods, because it was definitely invented here in the United States, and it actually probably was invented by a Japanese American, um, and the Japanese American, and uh, unfortunately, Funny. because of, yeah, because of World War Two, um, that that Japanese American was not able to kind of capitalize on his invention, and instead, all the Chinese restaurateurs kind of grabbed his invention and <laughs> sold, sold it at their stores, um, at their restaurants. Um, but it was it caught on really quickly, probably because of World War II with all the soldiers coming in and out of uh, San Francisco where the fortune cookie was probably invented. Um, and they probably ate at Chinese restaurants that served the fortune cookie. And uh, they definitely me- remembered it because who can forget the fortune cookie, right? <laughs> and then they <laughs> asked for it at their hometown uh, Chinese restaurants. And, of course, all the way in New York and New Jersey, they were happy to – uh, they were always happy to make their customers um, satisfied, so they quickly adapted the fortune cookie as well. So it became something, the fortune cookie, cookie became ubiquitous with Chinese restaurants, even though it's not Chinese, um, and it's, it was, uh, it's actually Japanese-American. <laughs> Isn't that funny, huh? So and, yeah. and then you have, of course, your, your final illustration here, your takeout container <laughs> it's become yeah. so iconic they now have them in mm-hmm. it's ceramic you know you yeah. can buy a ceramic one just like that <laughs> yes i know i feel like i could do a whole book just on the history of the takeout container probably <laughs> yeah probably you know i did a, a, an article for a magazine and um, i remember being so appalled, I opened my my wonderful refrigerator. At one point, the whole thing was filled with these little awful containers. <laughs> <laughs> so, now what what were you most surprised about, Rabbit? About the the, the backstories of some of these dishes? Well, the, see, the, the funny part about it is, I I grew up in England. You probably whether you can tell that or not, listener. But uh, Ch- Chinese restaurants were 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 popular. But they were made up of traditional English foods. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I mean, they didn't have anything, they didn't have anything, to, anything to do with China. They, the proprietors, I guess, were were Chinese, and they served whatever they thought the local population wanted. 
yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, when I wrote this book, the copy editor said, you should call it American Chinese food, not Chinese American food. Because American Chinese food means it's Chinese food that's been influenced by Ameri- Americans. It's like Chinese American food is actually uh, Chinese, it's, it's American food that's been influenced by chi- Chinese, by China. So it would be like a Chinese restaurateur uh, serving, serving here in the United States would be serving, I guess we'd say hot dogs or, or hamburgers with a little Asian twist, right? like a little Chinese <laughs> twist. That would be what oh, is considered Chinese American food. So maybe in England it would be considered English uh, American, uh, it would come Chinese English food because uh, maybe the Chinese, the Chinese uh, restaurateurs might have put a little Chinese twist onto the um, English food. Uh, what is a traditional, all I can think of, this traditional English food is like bangers and mash. <laughs> Which, um, mashed, mashed, mashed potatoes. Yeah. Green, green peas out of a can. <laughs> yeah. And maybe they put some kind of Chinese twist to it. I'm not sure what, but uh, that would make it that would make it uh, Chinese English food. <laughs> well, well the, time when, the time when I would would have been eating it, I didn't didn't go eating Chinese food. I could. <laughs> I went. I went home and ate whatever my mother gave me. Yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, again, this is um, it's it's enjoyable. It's uh, wonderfully uh, inspiring, actually, to read because uh, somebody took the the trouble to re-examine these foods that we've all grown to love and grew up on. And uh, yeah, Grace Lynn, um, you just did a great job. Our listeners, it's called Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. And isn't that the truth? Grace, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been fun. So uh, talk to you soon. When's your next book coming out? (laughs) Oh, my next book. Yeah, (laughs) hopefully. It takes me a long time. (laughs) Hopefully.